0: The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts.
1: Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing, educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me.
0: Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by Law Pods. Right. We're here with Chris Finney from St. Louis, Missouri. I know Chris is under what we call a cloud these days. Is that right, Chris? Yeah, it's
1: actually more of a smoke, Dan. It's Who would have thought that Canadian wildfire smoke makes it to St. Louis? But we've got it, and it's got a fog everywhere.
0: Well, we used to get a little bit of that in California, but it was self-generated, I think, from the, (laughs) the wildfires we had there. But I know a lot of law firms made a lot of money off those wildfires against the utilities companies that just let things be unrepaired and cause crazy fires. A lot of them because they burn a lot and do a lot of damage. But let's talk about you and tell us a bit about yourself for people that you know, I'm familiar with you from some of your results and from some of our mutual friends like Matt Nakajima over yep. in uh, Ohio, who's a good friend of yours. But a lot of people haven't heard of you, so tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: So yeah, pretty straightforward. Born and raised in St. Louis. I'm one of seven kids. Actually, my dad is a trial lawyer, and uh, there's I think. Three of us are lawyers in the family. We got one doctor, but extended family is all lawyers as well. In fact, my uncle is like a very, very successful and great lawyer here in St. Louis, Don Schleprezi. But one of seven kids went to law school here at SLU, St. Louis University, and was a prosecutor for a little bit, then got offered a job to be insurance defense guy for a little bit. I did that for like six months. Got out of that. I've got a, a beautiful wife and five kids. Man, we got a practice here that has uh, a couple lawyers, less than ten people here. So shoot to try up to four or five cases a year. We did like seven one year, and that was not very
0: healthy for anybody. So we're trying to manage that. I can imagine it. Wow, where do you fall in the seven? Because I'm the youngest of eight, so I know what it's like. To have oh, that, okay. The whole big family, and everybody knows your family, especially the family in the law. Because I got a couple of brothers and sisters, and dad that were uncle that were lawyers too. So it's yeah. And for the Midwest. So you see all these things we didn't even know we had in common. So where do you fall? So there's
1: four boys first. I'm the third boy. And then there's three girls. So i the third boy. So you're roughly, you could say kind of in the middle, enough to be known but not remembered. And so I think that's, as you know, probably when it comes to big families, it depends where, where you were born in that family, right? depends what kind of spotlight you attract.
0: Yes, being the youngest attracted a lot of spotlight. Yes, let's bring up the rear. (laughs) Just because I was the last. Yeah, exactly. I barely made it. So I was lucky to make it here. And and I'm still lucky to be alive these days every day. Thank God for that. So from St. Louis, and how many of your family work with you? Uh, None, none. Thank God. It's impossible to work with family.
1: We did for a little while, my dad and my brother and just my dad had been a solo guy for so long that it's hard to make that adjustment. He had been solo for 35 years and it's a difference. So I think things just naturally kind of worked out better this way. And we still kind of share cases back and forth with my brother. I'll I'll do that on a semi-regular basis.
0: And your brother's a personal injury lawyer too? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, my father was more of a country lawyer. So he didn't really stress trials. He thought trials were like not a good investment of time, especially it was like criminal trials and stuff. So once you got paid, it wasn't really that great. It wasn't financially incentive, but that's a different world back then. Sure. So you were a prosecutor. How long were you a prosecutor for? Only two years. And how do you think that helped you in your development? Because you know a lot of people, prosecutor to insurance defense to play employer.
1: Yeah, uh, well, so the goal there, I was wanted to get like, it used to be uh, in the city of St. Louis, you would get all these trials, right? You'd get, and I wanted to go there and shoot for like 10 jury trials a year and have two, three years under my belt and have 25 trials, be in front of a ton of juries, then market that somewhere else and move on. I always kind of wanted to lean towards the plaintiff once I started to get into law school, just kind of how I was raised. I only got, hell, I think I only got four trials when I was there for two years. Wow. You just couldn't get them. The loans were crushing. The pay wasn't very high. And I had to make some moves, especially since my wife was pregnant uh, with our first kid. And it was, you got to make some choices.
0: But do you think being the prosecutor and being in court every day helped you develop a comfort and presence in the courtroom? I would say
1: what we have are the preliminary hearings and the bench trials. Right. And those would be the smaller cases. Those things helped develop a, a ton of comfort. Being in court every day depended what you were doing, right? If you're just there getting something stamped, it's not the end of the world.
0: No, I mean speaking in court or you know, arguing emotion or you're right, that kind of stuff, just being up because like I remember obviously the first couple of times in court, it's like it's like stuttering. For months I was so nervous and so insecure about what I was doing. Correct. I felt bad for my clients. Of course they were court appointed at the time. So yeah. you know it was like we had each other, but but still it takes time sure under that kind of pressure to get comfortable yeah and then and how many years did you do in insurance defense uh 6 months not years oh that's good
1: yeah it was not a fit from the word go it was double pay right it doubled my pay and all that stuff i thought this was great this is what being a lawyer is about and it just yeah not a good deal
0: now, and you've had your own practice now for how many years uh,
1: i think we're coming up on six six years five six years yeah oh so Not that long. How long have you been practicing law for? Uh, I graduated in
0: 2010. Wow. So this
1: is, uh, what is the date? The 23rd. So it's 13
0: years. All right. So two years as a prosecutor, six months as an insurance defense lawyer. Then, Oh, did you go work for another firm for a while? Uh, I was with my dad. That's always challenging, obviously, because you're not with him anymore. Yes, I worked for my dad. Let me tell you, that was challenging. I felt like every day I was paying him back for being born and being raised and everything he's done for me. I'm like, this is crazy instead of getting a paycheck. But yeah. It was a tough experience. So now you've been on your own while and having some great success here. And so I know that you study this stuff a lot and you try a lot of cases. So what would you say the three most important qualities of a champion trial lawyer are?
1: I see those kind of vary, right? Depends on how it goes. But I think what I've been experiencing, I guess, in the last four or five trials is if you can be present with the jury, if you can really be present during those trials and not be in your head too much, that is a, like, I think the top thing, right? That is going to differentiate because you're experiencing the case with the jurors as it's going on. And you're not worried about what's happening on a cross or this or how it's coming out. You're just experiencing it. So presence, I think obviously you got to be able to focus, right? You have to shut things out and focus on things that are right in front of you and then grit. Because I think a lot of people talk about the ups and downs of the job. There are very few jobs that I'm aware of where the other side is paid to beat you like constantly beat you and they will come up with a variety of ways to beat you. And some of them might sound pretty good. And you just kind of have to grit your teeth and get through it and work around it. So if I had to say those three would probably be right now, what I think are the most important presence, grit, and focus.
0: All right. Cause I'm going to slightly disagree with you though, because okay. I think presence is not a quality. I think presence is a skill. Presence is something that you can work on every day by practicing and developing more skills, because I think the more skills you have, the more knowledge you have, the more relaxed you are. And that results in presence. I agree with you. So presence is really the result of focusing and executing and building your skill set and your knowledge of the case. And so that's where I would say presence would fall in. So if we're going to take presence away from you as grit and focus, is, focus is a skill. Grit is more of a quality or empathy is a quality. That would be the one,
1: right? Empathy, right? You've got to identify, you've got to understand where
0: people are coming from. And that's
1: your clients, that's the jurors, all the stuff we all hear about and talk about. You have to work that muscle, that empathetic muscle, because it's too easy to, to say, ah, I don't connect with that person. I don't want to represent that person, blah, blah, blah. We don't really have that choice, right? It's very hard to dislike someone up close. So you have to get to know them, you have to understand where they come from. And so empathy is a huge one. But that's kind of like baked in almost, right? What trial lawyer? Doesn't have empathy.
0: Not a very good one, I guess. Right. But it takes a lot to be empathetic. It can be emotionally draining when you start to really invest emotionally and care. And it matters. And it matters beyond the money. It matters beyond your own prestige. It matters because there's a human being there who's counting on you. Who's Our lives will go on if we lose a trial. Yes. But sometimes for the clients, it won't or it will, but it'll just be a very difficult life without any resources. Yeah. And not the ability to gather any either. So I don't know how much of a life it is. So, and then you have, because then if you care a lot and you try your hardest and things don't go your way, then you got to live with the results and the guilt. And so that's a a challenging part of the business too, I believe. (laughs) But those are qualities. And so what would you say skills, skills that are critical to being a winning presence, right? I mean, now that we're going to
1: define presence as a skill, I think that's huge. I do think agility, right? The ability to go back and forth between certain things, the ability to pivot that skill. And then you talked about it just a minute ago, but I do think developing connection, the ability to connect with people or the three skills, those three would be the most important that I would think have the best attribute, the best things come from those.
0: I kind of put connection and presence kind of like this together. Okay. Because if you can't connect, if you're not present, And if you are connected, you are present. You know what I'm saying? Because then it means you're relaxed and you don't feel like you're like a show pony up there. Like you're just kind of with these people, kind of like the guy who knows the most about it, but it's kind of leading them through it, right? Together is if you're connected. And I truly believe connection is a skill and that we can work on every day. It's a combination of appropriate eye contact, facial expressions, controlling what happens on the face. Because judge makes a bad ruling at the bench you could sit or, you turn around and like, have like a scowl on your face, but that's amateur art, right? Mm-hmm. You got to turn around and look like, I just crushed it, and even though you got stumped on, but the jury doesn't know and, and act like things are, you know what I mean? Whatever the question is, it looks like you did better than you did. Things like that. And when you know, people, people get nervous up there, especially when they're younger, like controlling that nervous face because then it looks like you're afraid. And then the mirror neurons of the jury, they look intense or afraid too, because they're looking at your face as opposed to having a warm face. Just not a smile, but just warmth. And so then that's reflected in their faces too. And I think that helps get the connection, the presence, the relaxation. But but those are skills that need to be practiced. And most people don't practice them because A, the time, or B, they don't know how. But the more you get up, just in general, the more comfortable you're going to get, the more you get up and you're actually practicing certain skills like eye contact, facial expression control, voice control, slowing your pace down, hand control, like moving your hands congruently with whatever you're doing. Like those all things I think connect together to lead to presence slash connection. Cause I think the whole game is connection. Cause as you know, during the pandemic, I got the chance to study with so many great trial lawyers. Mm-hmm. They're all stuck doing nothing. Cause I've been trying to figure this out for myself. Because I mean, obviously I want to be the guy on the verdict. I want to be the guy with the $10 million verdict, not just the guy interviewing the guy with the $10 million verdict. I think that would be more fun and potentially more lucrative, but <laughs> it's hard to say. But and so I was trying to figure out how to become this, how to do this. And what I realized is that the one thing that every one of them has in common, whether it's Keith Mitt, Nick, Nick Raleigh, Brian Panish, Joe Freed, et cetera, et cetera, is that they all really focus on their connection with the jury. That it's all about their connection with the jury. I mean, they're, they got different the strategy evidence that's great, but when they're in trial, they just focus on that connection with the jury, which is you know, really the whole game. Because it doesn't matter what story you're telling, if nobody's listening, and I said, to Joe Frieden, He goes, and Dan, the converse is true. It doesn't matter what story you're telling if you're connected because the jury is going to find a way to help you because they want you to win and they get to decide who wins and who loses. So that is a critical thing. What do you do on a regular basis to, imp- to keep working on your skills, to keep getting better for that next trial? I know we're talking about a trial or two here that you had in the recent times. Sure. And the great ones, they constantly are training, constantly working on getting better. Michael Jordan being in the gym the next morning at 4 30 AM after he wins a championship. When you know the rest of the teams out partying or hungover. So what do you do on a regular basis to try to keep improving your skill set and the skill set of your firm?
1: Well, so well, obviously you look at what are the great ones doing, like you said. So you look at somebody like Warren Buffett, he's reading all the time. So luckily for plaintiff's lawyers, there are tons of opportunities to read and learn from others. So a large majority. Are probably a more outsides percentage of my day is spent reading, just reading new ideas, things like that, and how to implement them. But well, the other thing that that definitely helps is I'll take any opportunity to speak in front of other people, right? No matter who it is, no matter where it is, no matter when it is. If I have a chance to speak in front of a group, I'm gonna take that to foster those things you just talked about, right? How can I develop on the connection, the being, the present, all those types of things so that, I mean, I think I spoke on Monday to a group of high school like law camping students. It was just another opportunity to get up there, get in front of them, work on the pacing, work on you know how I'm using the room, work on my connection, work on trying to in- involve everyone in that room, just like you would a jury. And so that would be the second biggest thing is, hey, if we get a chance to talk to somebody, we're going to take it. Any group, anywhere, anytime.
0: That is critical because being up there is just like being in front of a jury, getting that connection working on getting them interested in what you're talking about and teaching them this guy talking with jack cook the other day he's over with morgan and morgan he was a magician as a kid growing up you know with his dad and traveling and a traveling salesman with his dad he was in the military so you know that helps build some presence life and death situation he a stage actor and and a teacher a high school teacher i mean talk about life experiences that help become a, a great trial lawyer. I mean, obviously got to work on that stuff, but those are great things to help you get ready and just being up there in front of people constantly. And I do a fair amount of teaching and, and you know, I think it helps. And speaking, because, you know, obviously I host the conferences, right? So I'm always in front of people and I can see myself getting more comfortable every time. It just takes so many reps to get comfortable.
1: Yeah. That's the one thing I've noticed. The more you do it, the more you feel that you can identify that connective feeling, right? So the more you're in front of the groups and talking to them, the more that home feeling of I'm connected to that person, now I'm connected to that person, you identify it quicker, right? It's not like, hey, how did that talk go? No, I know how that talk went because I felt connected to all those people as I was doing it. I was almost in that flow state, right? You always wanna talk about that flow state. I felt in that flow state and now I know how to get there a little quicker, and a little bit easier. So when I get in that flow state, we have a better connection. Yes. And keep practicing
0: it. Yes. Now, you recently had a very great result. And I know that you talked to Joe Fried about it because you maybe implemented some of the stuff that he talks about and teaches as far as streamlining your case. He calls it a speed trial. Of course, I came up with that name, not to take credit for it. No, well, Never. He had to do all the work, but I at least came up I'm a, you know, I came up with a good name for it. So it makes it more fun. Like, yes. So tell us about this trial that you had recently. Because I know that, and you're coming to New York City. You're going to be talking about it. But let's talk about the trial first.
1: So the trial is probably one that I would think a majority of plaintiff lawyers have. It was an auto case with orthopedic injuries. Defendant ran a red light, hit my client, our client at our office. I worked this case with Alex Ledbetter and Ryan Campbell from my office. There's a police report and things like that. The client had no complaints at the scene, didn't go to the hospital after the crash, ambulance was declined, all those types of things, seemed to be moving fine, goes to the urgent care the next day, and doesn't mention his ankle, just that his neck and back are sore, then has a seven-week gap, any kind of treatment, till he goes to a chiropractor seven weeks later. Fast forward a little bit through that, he ends up having surgery on his ankle, He ends up having surgery on his neck, three-level disc replacement, and he has a one-level fusion on his lumbar spine. 62 years old at the time of the crash, worked a a job of of labor. He owned his own exterminating business. He'd been doing it for 45-plus years, kind of out in the field working and just loved work. That was the gist of the case. It's an orthopedic case that we probably all see face the same defenses of degeneration, aggravation of a preexisting condition, those types of things, and in non-reporting. He didn't mention his ankle at the urgent care, which was a big deal because he had ankle surgery, which led to a blood clot. Uh, now the blood clot got resolved, but it extended his treatment. So then he had 180 chiropractic visits in that time period because he couldn't have any shots or anything in his neck or back, couldn't have surgery because he was doing the blood clots treatment. And so they were all over too much treatment, excessive treatment, all that kind of stuff. We tried the case, got the jury 9 a.m. on a Monday. We did not get or 9 a.m. on Tuesday. We didn't get any jurors on Monday because there were too many trials going on. And we gave the case to the jury Wednesday at 2.05 p.m. And we had done 17 witnesses.
0: So you, hold on, you picked a jury. Yeah. Did openings and did your whole trial in a day and a half. Yes, 17 witnesses. 17. Now that's the most efficient I think I've ever heard of anybody being. That's like hyper speed trial. Then how long did the defense take? So the
1: defense, no, that included the defense's case. So we did, so we picked the jury. We had them seated by one o'clock on Tuesday. My case was closed by 1130 on Wednesday. So I started at one o'clock with my opening on Tuesday by 1130 AM on Wednesday, our case was done. And we had put on 12 witnesses, I believe, 13, 13 witnesses. The defense had four.
0: And that included doctors and before and after
1: witnesses? And Yep. 10 before and after witnesses and two doctors and our client. That's a lot of before and after witnesses. They were great. So the way that case developed was well, you have an older client, and I hate to say 62 or is older, but he had some degenerative conditions in his spine. And so they were going to harp on it. And I had listened a lot, tried to listen to as much as I can leading up to the trials, but how we're going to, Implement and frame our arguments. And I'd listened to some Michael Lezerman, and he had talked about making some cases about functionality. How did they function before versus after? So I knew I had these before and after witnesses. And so the question to them was just, hey, how did he function before this date, and how did he function after? And that was all we made it about. We put the doctors on so we could get some causation for the surgeries. But I ended up, we had a radiologist who I thought was fantastic. But it was an hour and a half long, right? He went over three different body parts, 30 minutes each, drawing all we had spent so much time using this nice software to draw so he could point out what I was pointing out on the Zoom depot. And I just scrapped it over the weekend. Just said we're not gonna do it. It's too long. It's not it muddies the waters. It doesn't fit with our theme of this case about functionality. It plays to the defense game of medicine is complex. So what was the offer before trial? So, right before trial, they got up to two and a half million. For the first year and a half, uh, well, the first mediation, we got no offer, zero dollars. Then we got an offer of $125,000 at the second mediation. Policy was six million. They gave us a $125,000 offer, and they were at that number till they got to 200 about six months before trial. And then a month before trial, they offered a million and a half. They went from 200 to a million and a half.
0: It's a pretty good jump.
1: It was much more than I was expecting, right? I thought maybe they would get up to a million because the initial underlying policy was a million. I was wondering how much skin was in that game. But he, he got into the
0: uh, excess policies too. And so then right before trial, they offered, on the day of trial in court, they offered you $2.5
1: The Friday before trial, well, I'll tell you how this played out. They were going, to, I figured they were going to get close to $2 million on their offer on the Thursday before trial. So have this back and forth with this adjuster or whatever, you know, he's doing the typical stuff saying, I can get two, but that's all I can get. I can't go any farther, blah, blah, blah. Well, I said, my guy's not going to take it, but whatever, get me what you can. Comes back and he says, I can get you two and a half million. I said, it's not going to do it. He goes, well, where are you? What's your number? I said, 275. This is the Friday before trial. And I go, let me know if you can do 275 we'll end the case. And he sends me an email that says, two fives, our final offer. Here are some structures to get your client to his number of 275 or 3 million. And I didn't respond to it. And uh, we just showed up on Monday to try the case. And I had a couple buddies up there that said I should settle the case that I was being, they didn't say it, but they're like, settle the damn case. Like, what the hell are you doing? You're only 250 apart, like settle the case. And I just couldn't do it. The client is an amazing guy and he would have done whatever I asked him to do. But he would have been really disappointed in me if I said take two and a half. Why? Because we talked about I it. I
0: mean, it just seems like it's a substantial number and a lot of challenges. Substantial number for orthopedic injuries. What was so critical about that extra 250000
1: What was so critical about the extra 250000 was he wanted $3 million for full acknowledgement. That's what this case was about for him. Acknowledgement that they changed his life. And that number was $3 million to him. And I thought it was a fair number. I didn't think it was bad. And he didn't want to go below it. We said, hey, if they get to this number, now we're talking serious dollars in your pocket. Listen, talking putting millions of dollars out there. So he said, if they got to 275, he would take it. But begrudgingly, he said he would take it because he texted me after he said that. He left my office. He said, I hope they don't offer 275. And luckily enough, they didn't. And he's such a great guy that I could tell when he said to me, what do you think I should do if they offer 275? I said, you should probably take it. And I could see he was disappointed. He was disappointed in me. And there was no way in hell then I was going to make him take two and a half, right? I mean, I, this guy had my trust. I can't bust it up. So they never offered it, thank God. And we went to trial and then, yeah, they came back with the 10.
0: That's pretty great. I know when you look in the mirror, you see an eight figure guy. And I know that you need validation from that jury. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, when I see
0: him. When you see yourself. You know oh, what I mean? It's not about I mean, me, though. I know. I'm being the smart ass. God, I have a sense of humor, Fanny. You can joke around a little bit.
1: <laughs> I was joking with you earlier. But no, it does feel good to get that number because it was exactly what we asked for, right? It was every penny we asked for was $10 million. They gave us $10 million, And that has never happened to me before. That was the first time. And that the four lady came out afterwards, and she came over, and she said, it's not enough. It's just not enough. It was really one of the most powerful experiences, just an unbelievable experience from start to finish.
0: Well, I only heard about the verdict from Joe Freed. Why does Joe Freed have to call me up and tell me you about your verdict? Why is it not coming directly from you? Dan, I got this great result. The world should hear about it. I said, absolutely, Chris.
1: Part of the reason I had talked to Joe about it is because Joe had been talking about speed trial, right? We have, in August, I tried a case with my cousins, a, a really complicated wrongful death trucking case that we got over $20 million verdict on. And we did it in really four days with tons of witnesses, tons of accident recons, tons of complex stuff. And I had been trying to find a way, you know, I get bored pretty quickly. I don't know about you. And I don't like want to spend a whole week or two weeks in a courtroom kind of imprisoned there. There's got to be ways to do it shorter. Well, Joe started, you know, I always listen to what really good trial lawyers do. Joe's one of those guys I definitely listened to. And he started talking about the speed trial method. I thought, well, I don't, I want to get this case done in two days, three days. So we can get a lot of cases done in two or three days if you knock away all the the fluff. And so I started to try some of that stuff on Joe and or Joe's techniques. And that felt like the the direct exams of the doctors were going really well, right? It was clean. It was bang, 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 bang. Started to implement him in trials. We got the $20 million in August. We got a $750,000 verdict in January on a $70,000 offer. We got a million-dollar damages verdict in February on a $25,000 offer. And I was like, "These something's hitting here, right? I mean, the proof is in the pudding, so let's try and make it shorter. And we did it this time and tried it as short as we possibly could. Maybe could have been a little shorter if you look back at it. Joe's like, hey, let me know how these things go. So it's like, Joe, this just FYI, this worked. Again, so thank you, thank you, thank you. It's like free information that helps everyone.
0: It's so great, like as a person as a disseminator of information, when you get those phone calls and those emails when somebody's telling you what you they learned either from you directly or from my program, from Joe, you know, the people that I help connect people. Yeah, that they used it and they got these great results. Because we all know what it's like to lose and how hurtful and painful losing is, and how much we'd like to eliminate it from our worlds as we can. And obviously, it's still a part of life. You go to trial, there's a chance that could happen no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you prepare, but it doesn't suck any less. And so, because when you're a winning trial lawyer as opposed to a losing trial lawyer, your whole life is different. I mean, your attitude's different. The people in your firm have a different energy. It's just everything's different and it's so much better. So, let me ask you this question We're going to do an actual case analysis where we're going to break down your verdict from The beginning, which is focus groups, if you did any on them, all the way through rebuttal and talk about your voir dire, especially, because I'm especially curious about that because of all the challenges that you had and how you framed and reframed those issues, how you structured your opening, then really how you put your evidence together and sequenced your witnesses and the efficiency. And obviously, how you, whatever couple of defense witnesses they had, how you reduced their credibility or the nonsense stories exposed them for who they were. And then you know, the closing argument, especially the damages argument, too. So really understand and, and learn what you did here so that we can replicate it, just like you're replicating things that Joe has shared with you. So I think we have the dates for that one as August 7th. Yep. At It'll be at 1030 Pacific Time, 130 Eastern Time, but you're somewhere between, right? Midwest. 1230 in St. Louis. Yes correct. It's actually great. So let me ask you this question though. What would you say the three major lessons that you learned from this trial, that things that went great, that you're going to definitely try to refine, and maybe some things that maybe didn't go so great. They're like, whoa, dodge that bullet, won't make that mistake again.
1: And that's a solid question. I hope I can come up with three, but there were more maybe affirmations of ideas that we have tried. This was the most before and after witnesses I've ever put on. And we made a concerted effort from our client. I mean, we had to hound him for these people, right? I mean, they just, most clients, they'll give you, oh, here's my brother and here's my wife or my, you know, my my buddy. And it's like, no, 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 we need more. I need more. And so we spent a lot of time getting those names and talking to those people to where we had 10. We had actually one of them was the auto parts manager at the body shop that he uses for his business. And she'd known him for 10 years. And she did her depo from her phone on her lunch break on Zoom. She killed it. She was great. And so it was more affirmation to me, these before and afters are what are going to drive a lot of the damages. If we can illustrate to these jurors how it plays out in someone's life, because you go to the doctor, what, once a month, maybe you go to a spine surgeon every, you're not going every week, but these are people seeing them on a regular basis. So we're making more of an effort to find those people. And it sounds, everybody says, has been a lot of people say that before and afters, before and afters, but like, we might get three or four and say, that's great. The more we can get, I've heard Rick Friedman say, the only thing where he says in one of his talks of don't show restraint in numbers or whatever is before and afters. If they have good stories, keep them coming. And, there, and most of ours in this case, less than two minutes. Three, four questions. I would did you do them by video? We did a mix. So some by video, some in person. But the videos were pre-recorded depo clips. Yeah. And they were minute 15, minute 17. So we worked on that. That was before and after. It was a huge takeaway again. And then the other one was, you and I talked about this a little bit earlier, but the value of presence. We didn't get stuck in our trial notebook. We didn't get stuck in our notes. We didn't get stuck in any of that stuff. We focused on what was actually happening in the trial. We didn't get married to an outline that for the accident recon cross examination or the police officer. We were really focused on what is he saying? How's it coming out? What does it sound like in this courtroom? Not what I think it's going to sound like, not what it sounded like in his depot. What's it sound like right now? And the idea of staying present on that and hearing those and then being able to adjust based on how that went, I think played very well. So being present before and afters and then trust in your gut. My cousin, Craig is a great, Craig Schlipriese, he's a fantastic trial lawyer here in St. Louis. And when you get to these numbers and you're talking to people, there's very little, very few that you can talk to about. Because most people say, take the money, dude, two and a half million dollars, take the money. And I had talked to him at length and he said, he never, didn't tell me to take the money, didn't tell me to do any of that stuff. He said, no one knows the case like you. No one knows your client like you. You have to trust yourself as to what this case is worth and what it is for the client. And so it's trust in our gut, right? I mean, I had a really good friend come up there during the trial and say, settle this case, take the money, take the money. And I was like, I can't do that. And so it would be those three things, right? Just the trust in the gut, the staying present and the before and afters, which aren't procedural things. They're not legal things or whatever, but they do make a difference in the outcome. I think
0: clearly based upon the results, since we're kind of in a results business, yeah. in the trying, I know it's called trying a case, but really it's about winning a case. So let me ask you, what are you going to teach? I know Joe has invited you to teach with him. And so what are you going to share though? What knowledge? Because I know you want to get on the stage as much as possible, because you said that earlier, and that's why you come to New York. But now you have the stage with some, which is great, you know what I mean? Because Joe is like, honestly, Joe like him and I go back from 2002, I believe. And in 2003, he was one of my instructors at the trial lawyers college. And in 2013, I had a a drink, maybe a soda, it doesn't really drink too much at the Wynn sitting outside. And I'm like, because I was a criminal offense lawyer. And I'm like, you know, I really want to be a plaintiff's lawyer. Because it looks like a lot more fun <laughs> because I was, you know, seeing all this stuff in Vegas, all these plaintiff's lawyers and it looked like they're having fun. And a lot more fun than criminal defense lawyers. And he says, well, Dan, if you want to become, to get to know people and get a community, you have to learn, you have to have something to talk about at conferences, right? That's how you meet people, by speaking and teaching. And so he's like, you got to figure out what you can do. And so I came up with this idea of like witness prep and he like poo-pooed it. He's like, that's nonsense. That's like psychodrama in a chair. But that just pissed me off, of course. It made me work harder. He claims he was just doing that to motivate me. But he kind of gave me the idea to start the program I used to teach called Trojan Horse Method before the pandemic for like six or seven years. And so he's been one of the more influential people in my life, as far as a lawyer goes. I mean, what by far. And he's taught at every program, every major program that I've done, almost every one, like the ones I used to do in Vegas that you came to last year that we're not doing this year, we're doing New York instead. But, and so he's just been such a great influence in my life. That's all I need to say about Joe. But, so you're going to be teaching with Joe and what is it you are going to be teaching?
1: We're going to be just going over speed trial stuff, basically implementing it in the field. And how does it play out? What's it look like? And then but it obviously has some results behind it. So that helps get people's attention. But it's about, first off, just it's incredible that I can sit down and talk to Joe and learn from Joe about these things. But also, hopefully, my experience about how fast you can try these cases. And it's more efficient, not speed. But it is efficiency, right? That's kind of the idea behind it is how efficiently can you try your case? We're going to kind of go over those types of things, where to cut, how to cut, what not to cut. Where to do it, when to do it, how to do it, and just kind of the the nuts and bolts of it.
0: That's going to be great. And I know that the more people I talk to, the more people are trying to implement this and working on streamlining and focusing their cases and getting better results because the results these days after the pandemic are pretty spectacular. People talk all the time how the results are going up, how verdicts are going up. I think the major driver of that is all the hard work and learning that plaintiffs, lawyers did, you know, so many of us did during the pandemic compared to sitting on our asses and not doing anything because we're not getting paid for it like so many defense lawyers did. And so we just got sharper, smarter, and more of a community because that shit brought people together. You know what I mean?
1: The case analysis, like the trial lawyer university stuff during the pandemic, it was like that was what we had going on, right? You log in to watch that person talk. They weren't doing that on the other side. I'm not sure what they do, actually. I shouldn't even (laughs) get There was an incredible amount of sharing during that pandemic about this is what we're trying here. This is what we're trying here. This is what's working. This is what's not. And then guys like me, just younger guys like me with smaller practices can then take those ideas. And if you're not afraid to look stupid at times, you can try them
0: and refine them. And sometimes they work. How old are you, Chris? I'm 39. Wow. I got to get my ass moving as far as career accomplishments. You make me feel bad about myself. But I'm working hard. I was a late bloomer, though. I didn't get over to California until I was 45, so I had all that years of marinating in Detroit and clouds and flatness and rain and no plain, you know, terrible planter lots in Michigan. That's why, I, like, there was no community of planners lawyers because they we'd all just scrapping by. So I'd like California better, but Vegas is good now too. Well, Chris, it was great getting to know you and you being here, and I look forward to our August 7th meeting. And now that you mentioned these other two verdicts, I might have to push you to discuss those two because those smaller cases are what everybody has, you know, those smaller auto cases where you get the $25,000 offer and you got to say, you know, F off and prepare and go and work and get a verdict that represents what was taken from your client. And courage to do that is the whole game. And so it's great hearing about it learning a lot more about it because I'm going to have to have a very in-depth preparation session so you can teach me everything you did. That's just my mentoring Dan time I always impose on people for, and, it's, and I'm looking forward to it. So thank you for coming here, and, and I'm really looking forward to New York City because this is our first time on the East Coast, first time in the Big Apple. It's a little daunting of a challenge because you know, it's different. It's not my neighborhood like the West Coast, but hopefully lots of people will come together and create a new community of learning out there. That's the goal. That's what we're focusing on. That's what we're going to make happen. We got about 82 more days to make it happen. And I got 12 hours a day to work on it.
1: Looking forward to it. I I definitely, Dan, I really do truly appreciate these opportunities and especially the opportunities to learn from others. That's where it really is for me. It's the other's ideas are the ones I steal. So I appreciate it.
0: It's going to be great. Thanks, Chris. Join us September 20th to 23rd in New York city for TLU live. We're going to have some of the greatest trial lawyers in the country coming from Brian Panish, Ben Morelli, Judy Livingston, Joe Freed, Zoe Littlepage, Rex Paris, and the list goes on and on. And not only will we have four lecture tracks, but we're gonna have seven workshop tracks where you can work on and hone a specific skill in a small group taught by a great trial lawyer. The website is tlunyc.com. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University. Produced and powered by LawPods.